Acts chapter 17, Sunday night, through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we find ourselves making our way through the book of Acts, and uh, now to chapter 17. In chapter 17, Paul continues his second missionary journey. You remember last week, he left the city of um, Philippi after mm, a difficult but very, very fruitful uh, ministry there, ends up planting one of the most dear and precious churches in the whole uh, New Testament era, and then certainly in the early church there in Philippi. And uh, now he continues that journey, missionary journey. Now, when they had passed through, uh, uh, and let me see, I've got it right here, Amphipolis and Apollo, Apollonia, uh, they came to Thessalonica. And so we see they passed through these two cities, but they came to Thessalonica. And what Paul is doing here is he is following a pattern that he followed throughout his missionary journeys of typically stopping. He couldn't stop in every city and, and spend the time that it took to establish a church. So it was his methodology to go to a larger city of larger population uh, to endeavor to establish a strong uh, church planting mission there and then uh, a church there and then allow that city to then reach the smaller cities that were around it. And so Thessalonica follows that, that pattern. It was about a population of about uh, 200,000 uh, at that time. Very, very prosperous city. Uh, at that day, much, very much a commercial center as it is today, and the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia. And uh, unlike um, uh, Philippi, uh, we're told that when they came to Thessalonica, there was a synagogue of the Jews. And so he begins his outreach, as he did when there was a synagogue present, uh, with uh, speaking to the Jewish people first, to the Jew first, and then also to the Greek, was Paul's method as well, and uh, to establish uh, a, a foothold for a church out of the group of people who knew the Scriptures best in any city where they were present, and that is the Jews. And so he makes his way there, and he, as his custom was, he went into them, and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. And so uh, Paul only spends, it appears, three Sabbath days, three Saturdays, a very short period of time, for establishing a church there. Uh, we're going to find out why the, uh, the stay was so short in, in just a moment. But when we read uh, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians in the New Testament, and we see how strong a church uh, was established there, we realize it doesn't take forever to establish a church um, when those that uh, hear the gospel, their lives are changed, they commit fully to uh, this life and to what God has called a church to be in a city, and, and then for that, city, that church to take root. And so uh, a short period of time, but, and, but when you read First and Second Thessalonians, you marvel at the amount of doctrine he was able uh, to teach them during those three weeks when you, uh, he tells them repeatedly, and you remember I said this, and you remember this, and you go, wow, those were three power-packed uh, Saturday services there in the synagogue. And, uh, and uh, so 
the uh, uh, beautiful, really, when you consider uh, what it was that God did there in Thessalonica. And he reasoned with them there, uh, we're told, uh, from the Scriptures. And so uh, he uh, reasons with them as Jews uh, from the Scriptures, from the Old Testament uh, Scriptures based upon uh, really the Old Testament uh, prophetic a portrait of the Messiah who was to come. And so he reasoned with them to put their faith in Jesus as that described Messiah, uh, as that promised Messiah, and to do so based upon the Old Testament scriptures uh, that, that spoke of the Messiah who was to come. He, he specifically focused on explaining and demonstrating that uh, Christ, Messiah, had to suffer and rise from the dead. Again, this was a foreign, uh, not a, a well-taught uh, area of the Scriptures for the Jewish people by and large. They liked the conquering king portrait of the Messiah in the Old Testament. They didn't like the suffering Savior that much. And so there would be a level of rejection of Jesus as the Messiah based upon the fact that he was a suffering Savior, all of the hardship that he went through. And Paul has to correct this uh, neglect on the part of Jewish teachers to their Jewish congregations in the, in the synagogue, and that not only does this not disqualify Jesus as the Messiah, uh, but it qualifies him, uniquely qualifies him uh, as, as the Messiah. That word uh, as he would explain and demonstrate, that Greek word for demonstrating, it literally means to place uh, alongside. For three, so for three consecutive Sabbaths, he laid down uh, the life, the death, the ministry, the teaching, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus on one side, and then he laid on the other side uh, all of the prophetic passages that spoke to those things concerning the coming Messiah. And it doesn't take any argument. When you recognize that the Scriptures are authoritative, all you have to do is lay out the description from the Old Testament and then Jesus' life, and it demonstrates itself. And so that's what he did uh, with the Jews in calling them to recognize Jesus as their Messiah. Of course, there would have been no shortage of passages that he could have gone to in the course of those uh, three Sabbath days. He could have gone to all of uh, Isaiah chapter 53, could go into Psalm 2, Psalm 22, uh, Psalm 16, and uh, on into Isaiah in, in laying that case. The portrait fairly uh, fills the Old Testament because Jesus said the volume of the book, the whole Old Testament, is not about how a law given to us in order to try and work our way to heaven on the basis of our own uh, good deeds, but that it speaks of him as the Messiah who would come and provide salvation uh, to us and that prophetic uh, portrait given to us so we would recognize him uh, uh, when he uh, came. And so why did God provide this prophetic portrait of the Messiah in the Old Testament? And why does Paul draw upon it in calling them to faith in Jesus as the Messiah um, except that uh, a faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah uh, is, uh, God wants it to be a reasonable faith. 
that it is based upon something reasonable. There is a reason for it. And the reason for it is the greatest reason that there can be, and that is that the Old Testament prophecies uh, speak of Jesus as the Messiah. So people can sometimes wonder, if you're not familiar with the Bible at all, Somebody comes up to you and says, uh, and somebody says, listen, you need to put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And because we're more and more post-Christian in this uh, country, less and less people exposed to the Bible in, in their childhood and all, someone might li- listen to something like that and go, why would I trust in Jesus as Messiah or as in anything? Uh, more than any of the other 8 billion people on the face of the planet today, not counting those that have lived in history. And they don't know. And the reason is because God has spoken of, prophetically, of the Messiah who would come, who would fulfill these prophecies. And Jesus is the only one uh, that, that does that. And so Paul intentionally, he founds their faith, our faith, on the fulfillment of the prophetic uh, uh, scriptures and, uh, and, and spent three weeks uh, doing that, demonstrating and explaining, uh, reasoning in that way that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you uh, is the Christ. Now, some of them, in terms of the response to Paul's three weeks of ministry, some of them were persuaded. They got it. It's like, yeah, that's it clearly. I mean, anybody could, I mean, when the Holy Spirit turns that light on, it's like, what? And uh, they were persuaded. Count me in. And a great multitude of the devout Greeks that were Gentiles here, we're talking about God-fearers, and not a few leading women joined Paul and Silas. They became Christians as well. So you had uh, a, a number of Jews in the synagogue that became uh, believers in Jesus uh, uh, in those three weeks. Also these God-fears, these uh, Gentiles who had spent their life worshiping all of the gods of the Greeks and the Romans and found them to be quite unsatisfactory. And, were, and the monotheism, the fact that there was... You, gotta get, you had to give Judaism and Christianity credit, uh, uh, at least for ease. I mean, there was only one God to keep track of, and only one God to try and please, how, whatever the basis would be for pleasing Him. With the Greek and Roman gods, I mean, it's like there were so many to try and keep track of, much less to, to please, and plus the kind of human being that the, the Scriptures produce the quality of moral, spiritual, uh, emotional, mental life that came out of that appealed to them. And so they, they liked the God of the Bible, of the Old Testament, and, and they had uh, con- converted to following that God, except that they didn't engage in circumcision or, uh, or, or commit to um, keeping the Sabbath as a means of righteousness. And so uh, these God-fears, not a f- and not a few leading women. So here we have the same caliber of woman uh, here in Thessalonica that we were introduced to in terms of Lydia in the book of, of in, in the, his visit there in Philippi, and uh, very prominent uh, in their position and in their uh, success and reputation there uh, in the city, and they became Christians as well. Uh, 
But the Jews who were not persuaded, they became envious. Oh, boy. Hmm. Well, that would explain their reaction. A rational reaction of the Jews, the other Jews in the synagogue, who looked at what Paul was saying about Jesus as the Messiah based upon the Old Testament Scriptures, the proper response to that, if you didn't agree with it or you thought that Paul was teaching error, would be to say, wait a second, time out. We don't agree with that at all. You're twisting the Scriptures in what you're doing here. And, uh, and then to lay out the Scriptures for themselves and have an open debate concerning uh, Paul's contention that Jesus uh, is the Messiah. But they don't do that. And they don't do that for a reason. Because the Scriptures are so compelling in terms of the case that they make for Jesus as Messiah. And so what they're upset about now is, is not uh, what he taught or their endeavor is not to try and fix what he taught. They know that's hopeless. And so now they're upset that so many uh, from the synagogue that they were a part of now had been drawn away uh, into uh, uh, what the, the Jewish faith was intended to be and the Christian faith certainly is, and that is the worship of uh, of Jesus. And so they became envious over this. Envy will never <laughs> produce a, uh, a, a, a rational decision in our life or have a good end in our life, and it does it for them. So they, they were not persuaded and becoming envious. They uh, took some of the evil men from the marketplace. Um, they, they found the local chapter of Antifa. And they, in gathering a mob, they set all of the city in an uproar. And they attacked the house of Jason and brought, uh, to, uh, brought, sought to bring them out to uh, the people. And there's always a mob that's lying around, waiting around, uh, kind of bored, sitting idly in life. And here's a little bit of excitement. Let's burn somebody's house down and arrest them and beat them up. And, uh, and so uh, they were uh, easily stirred up. I mean, history is just filled with uh, examples of, of, uh, of manipulating people emotionally and, uh, and, and under the motivation of envy as well. And so they had their crowd... Um, to come against Paul and Silas and his group and those were, who were housing him. And, uh, but when they did not find Paul and Silas there in the house of Jason, they dragged Jason and some uh, brethren to the rulers of the city. So in those days, you had to give some real thought to hosting a home Bible study. Um, what, what might happen to you. And so they bring Jason, some of the brethren, to the rulers of the city, the judges of the city, crying out, uh, those, uh, these who have turned the world upside down have come uh, here too. And, and so uh, this beautiful accusation that is made against Paul, that made against his party, is that this message, and they were aware of it, this message had gone through, uh, continuing to immerse the Roman Empire, and it was having quite a, uh, a response and, and uh, reaction within the Roman Empire, and the whole world was being turned upside down under the preaching of Jesus as Messiah. We know, of course, as is readily observed, 
observed on the, in the passage that Paul was simply turning the world right side up in what he was doing. But we understand what they were saying. And the accusation that Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar saying that there uh, is another king, Jesus. So this tells us that they listened to Paul's sermons on those three weeks. They understood that he was preaching Jesus uh, as the king of a kingdom and the means of, of, to join that kingdom by being born again and becoming a Christian and so forth. And so they listened, but they didn't listen with an open mind or an open heart. They listened in, in an endeavor to find fault in some way and a reason to reject what Paul uh, was, was saying. Well, this is a, a pathetic way of, if you look at what Paul lays out in terms of faith in Jesus as the Messiah based upon the Old Testament scriptures and how airtight, watertight that is, and here they only thing they can come up with as an accusation against it is that he's saying that there's another King Jesus other than uh, uh, Caesar as, as, uh, as king. And so they just take this little piece. It's a very flimsy uh, way of addressing things. But again, uh, envious, envious, not a terribly rational uh, emotion. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city uh, when they heard these accusations. And so when they had taken, uh, the, the judges had taken security from Jason and the rest, uh, they let them go. And so here it would have been good for uh, the, the rulers uh, of, uh, of in the Roman Empire, the rulers there in the city of Thessalonica was would have been good for them to say, well, exactly what is it that they're teaching here? And bring out your case against them. They don't do that. They see a riot is developing and maybe it's an election year and we don't want to displease people on either side here. And, uh, and so uh, they uh, take and they kind of give a citation of some kind and say, okay, uh, Jason, you and your compatriots here, uh, you are assigned to come before uh, a Roman court here and, uh, and speak to the charges brought against you. Now, this is a clear indication that the judges in the city did not take seriously uh, the accusation of these, the envious Jews or the mob that they had uh, produced it all because if they had, they would have simply arrested Jason and, uh, and, the, uh, and the rest of the Christians that were with him and, and not at all uh, let him uh, go. And so uh, he's, uh, uh, they're released on the condition that they'd make sure that, probably make sure that Paul and Silas would leave town immediately. And that's what happened. And then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Uh, no city wanted to have the distinction of uh, this is the city where the apostle Paul was martyred. And, uh, uh, and so they knew his life was in real danger. I think this is the fifth or the sixth time now in his missionary journeys that he leaves these cities having established a church. Uh, but he leaves them under threat of his own safety and his own, uh, own life. And so they went by night to Berea 
And, uh, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews uh, there in the city of Berea. And these uh, were more, the, uh, these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. Uh, that is, the Jews inside of the synagogue were more fair-minded. I, I like it in the old King James. They, they were more noble uh, than uh, the Thessalonians. And, uh, and the Jews in, uh, in uh, Berea were more noble in that, number one, they received the Word of God with all readiness. Paul came to them, preached probably the same, basically the same sermons to them. And they, they were ready to hear what Paul would say to them from the Scriptures. So they're inquisitive. They're teachable uh, still, as long as you're going to teach from the Scriptures. And so they... Uh, receive the Word, Word of God with all readiness, and then having listened to what Paul uh, taught them, they then searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. And this is what makes a noble-minded or a fair-minded uh, person, but a fair-minded uh, uh, Christian, uh, even after we become a Christians, Christian, is when we're characterized by these two things— we receive the Word of God as it's taught with all readiness of mind. There's an eagerness to grow in our knowledge of God, our understanding of God, our knowledge of the Scriptures. But we don't just believe everything that anybody says with a Bible in their hand or standing behind a pulpit like this. We receive the Word of God with all readiness of mind, but then we search the Scriptures to see whether that what this person is saying is actually true to the Scriptures. Um, back when uh, Karen and I got going with the Lord and, in uh, uh, 1980 or, or so, uh, Chuck Missler was uh, quite... Everybody was listening to Chuck Missler among a lot of other people. And Chuck Missler would always talk about Acts 17.11. Be sure you're a Berean. Acts 17.11. Acts 17.11. Uh, search the Scriptures. See whether these things are so. He started virtually every sermon he ever preached in that way. He, would, he could get a little fanciful. And, and he said, you receive it, but you test everything that I say uh, from, from the Scriptures. And that just kind of became uh, our DNA and, and to do that. And so it tells us that this... These Jews there in Berea, that they were receptive to, uh, to the Word of God. And so they, they received uh, the Word of God as, as, uh, as Paul uh, taught it. And then they searched the Scriptures. And of course, the way you search the Scriptures is you test what's being taught against the Scriptures. Now, in those days, they'd have like uh, the scrolls of the Old Testament Scriptures. Nobody had a Bible on their lap in the synagogue, and nobody could own a set of scrolls of the Old Testament. Everything was hand-copied in those days. That would be uh, unbelievably uh, priceless to own that. And so they did that within the synagogue after Paul had shared what he shared. We possess a complete Bible, Old and New Testament, on our lap. And so 
to listen, to listen politely, to listen with a hunger to the Word of God, but not to believe everything that someone says. You know, on Sunday mornings, uh, you know, we, uh, uh, I want, I, 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 God wants everybody to own a Bible, to know the Bible, to read the Bible. We want everybody to do the same thing. And so a lot of times, again, people don't know to bring a Bible to church. And so on Sunday mornings, we let them know if you don't have a Bible, you've come here today. We want you to not only hear the Word of God, but read it with your own eyes. And so the men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and they'll give you one And if you, uh, if you haven't brought one, because that's what we want. We want them to look at the Scriptures and to begin now to test what's being taught by the Word of God. The interesting thing to me is that Paul was not offended by this at all. I'm the great apostle Paul, and you're testing what I say. It's spoken, it's commended. The Holy Spirit commends it. Paul loved this. Uh, Paul is no uh, teacher of the Bible uh, that recognizes its authority and and, uh, and is able to rightly divide uh, the word of truth will ever be troubled that somebody tests what it is that they're saying if what we're saying comes from the word of God. And so this was something that's commendable. And of course, um, I I, uh, don't want to make anybody feel unduly bad, but in order to test uh, uh, everything and uh, and test searching the Scriptures, testing it to find out whether uh, what the teacher is saying, it does require having a Bible on our lap, and whether in electronic form or uh, in, a, in a hard copy. Uh, don't go to church without a Bible. Don't trust anyone that much. And don't trust your own understanding of the Scriptures uh, that much. And therefore, many of them, the response to Uh, this uh, teaching of Paul. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few uh, of the Greeks, again, Gentiles, prominent women as well as men. Uh, But when the Jews from Thessalonica, boy, these folks, that envy, that'll get you doing stuff. When they learned that the Word of God was preached by Paul, now at Berea, uh, they came there also, and they stirred up the crowds And uh, then immediately the brethren sent Paul away uh, to go uh, to the sea, but both uh, Silas and Timothy uh, remained there. And so Paul, again, he leaves under the threat of physical harm. He goes to the sea, uh, but he, uh, he, he wants this church to be more fully established. So he leaves uh, Silas behind, leaves Timothy behind to do that for a time. And so those who conducted Paul uh, brought him uh, to uh, Athens and uh, receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him. And with all speed, uh, they departed. And so Paul goes to Athens. He's there for a period of time. And then he sends word that he wants uh, Silas and Timothy now uh, to, to join him. And while Paul waited for them at the city of Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to uh, idols. And so uh, here you have Athens, which was by this time about 500 years past its uh, golden age in terms of 
of human history. And so Corinth has replaced it as the commercial center, as the, uh, as the uh, political center at that time. But Athens remained the cultural and, and philosophical uh, center of the Roman Empire. And uh, only Athens could boast of having been the native city of Socrates and Plato, uh, became then the adopted home of Aristotle, Epicurus, and Zeno. And so uh, that's quite a a heritage for an intellectual uh, pedigree for a city. And it maintained its reputation in the ancient world even after the sun had set on it as a commercial center as a uh, very much a a university, uh, university city and, uh, and, uh, uh, and a place of learning. The city was, for all of its learning, uh, it was given over, we're told, to idols. The place was jam-packed with idols, jam-packed with uh, the, these uh, gods, just a forest of idols everywhere, every street corner, idols to Zeus or Athena or Aphrodite or Ares or Hermes and so forth and uh, uh, all, all over throughout the entire city. And that's just, uh, you know, talking about kind of the top 10 of the uh, gods that were worshiped at that, at that time. And uh, it was interesting, uh, I see, look at Tom over here, who's always such an inspiration to me. Thank you, Tom, for always sitting in the same seat. He's a friend, I can do that to him. But we had, we, we had the pleasure of, um, going to India uh, one time on, on a trip and, and just to see the idolatry everywhere. At that time, I assume it hasn't changed. And uh, you know how you'll uh, go through on our highways in different places and then you stop and you pay a toll. Now you pay it through the, uh, the, the electronic means and everything. But in India, you'd be on a road and then you would stop and then there, was a, there would be a, an, an altar to an idol right there that you were then uh, required uh, to leave something for to continue on the road. And, uh, and that ingrained in, in, in the culture gave us a little bit of a glimpse of what Paul must have run into. Well, he sees all of these idols all over the place and, and, uh, and it tells us that his spirit was provoked uh, within him. It, it, uh, it, uh, the word provoke means to sharpen. It, it, it made him uh, want to uh, preached the gospel in Athens more than ever. He saw the need for it. If you've ever been in an environment, maybe at a memorial service or maybe at a wedding or uh, maybe at a, uh, a church in, in a church somewhere in, in Europe or something where these giant churches are everywhere, huge crowd are inside. They're looking at it purely for the architecture, no thought at all to the spirituality of it by and large. And it can provoke you. Uh, If you didn't uh, know you would get arrested, you would want to climb up into that pulpit and preach John 3.16 to the whole group. The faith that built this, the faith that was behind this, the people that worshipped here, that, that uh, longed to build something that would reflect their appreciation of the greatness and the, the beauty of God and explain it in the light of God. And we can find ourselves getting provoked in that way, in a good way. And, and his spirit was provoked um, in, 
in that way. And his response is given to us there in verse 17. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and, uh, and with the Gentile worshipers there uh, in that synagogue and, um, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. And so on Saturday, Sabbath day, uh, Paul would go to the synagogue and uh, he would reason with the Jews from the Scripture showing Jesus to be the Messiah. And then for the rest of the week, uh, he would go out into the marketplace, the Agora of, of Athens, and, uh, and he would just begin to speak to people about the gospel and uh, God's offer of salvation through Jesus Christ and, and personal conversations that he engaged people uh, in, maybe even did some open-air uh, preaching. And so while he's doing this, uh, he gets the attention of certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and they encounter him, not hostily, uh, but they're hearing him preach something they had never heard before in their lives. So they encounter him in the sense that now they want to engage him uh, with what it is that he's teaching there uh, in the city of, of Athens. And uh, the Epicureans and the Stoics, they were the, the two major philosophies that were represented in Athens at the time. The Epicureans believed they were very, very much materialists in their uh, outlook uh, virtually atheists, uh, for them the gods either did not exist or they were so far removed from mankind uh, that uh, they, they exercised virtually no influence upon man or upon the world. And so they taught that pleasure was the main aim in life, uh, but they didn't, uh, at that time, you, th- you talk about an Epicurean today, you're talking about sometimes about debauchery and great excess. That wasn't what the Epicureans were uh, initially, and, uh, but they, uh, they, they sought uh, pleasure in the sense of doing what was necessary to live a life of peace and quiet. The Stoics believed, uh, they, they were pantheists, they believed that everything was God, and so they believed that wisdom lay in being free from emotion, uh, being unmoved by joy or unmoved by grief, and the most important thing in life was to follow one's reason uh, and, and to put, uh, and to put the emotion, uh, whatever the emotion, uh, under the total control uh, of, of reason. In fact, more than total control to absolutely eclipse it. And so they stressed uh, individual self-sufficiency, self-discipline, and self-control, a, song, a strong sense of duty uh, in, in life. And of course, this attracted the uh, thinking person in uh, the culture, also the strong person, the self-made man or woman. The problem with the Stoics is it didn't offer any hope. So you can't have a religious system or a philosophy that encourages people to think and then not give them any hope, uh, not give them uh, any kind of truth or hope of some kind because this kind of person will think and they'll think and they'll think and they'll think, but without hope or without truth, they'll become fatalists. And uh, it's no accident that the first two leaders of uh, the Stoic school ended up committing uh, suicide. It's a bad track record out of the gate, but it was a reflection upon their philosophy. So, 
Excuse me. So Epicureanism, Stoicism, these were the two main ways that people were attempting to relate to God if he did exist, to uh, finding the meaning of life um, in, in those days in the city of, of Athens, uh, how to learn to navigate life successfully, at least with as little pain as possible, and, uh, and uh, important to know a little bit about them as Paul's going to address them quite uh, pointedly in the sermon that he delivers in just a moment. One of the things that we look at in our society today in the United States where um, we can uh, sometimes in our, our pride or our arrogance, or certainly in institutions of higher learning, um, we can look at, uh, you know, Epicurean philosophy or Stoicism and uh, the beliefs that people had in the ancient world and it can just look like so much superstition and foolishness. Uh, in, in, in the uh, light of our sophistication and our uh, enlightenment. But I, I, would, I would contend, however misguided their attempts were to answer the great questions in life, to try to discover the meaning and the purpose of life, if there is meaning and purpose uh, to life, However misguided they might have been in endeavoring to do that, they at least did it. And by and large, in much of the higher education in our country and the products of that higher education, there's no thought given to that at all. And so it, 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 we don't, from our vantage point, we have really no place to look down upon people who we're endeavoring to figure out why are we here, how did we get here, why do we die, what happens after death, all of these great questions in, uh, in, in life. And so here are the, the, the philosophers encounter them, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? And, and I think the old King James says, what does this seed picker uh, or at least babbler means seed picker. What does seed picker, uh, what does the seed picker want to say? Now, I don't know if Paul knew what a seed picker was. I assume he did. Um, if somebody came up to me and said, you know, if I was street witnessing and they said, hey there, you little seed picker, um, I wouldn't know what he meant, but I'd have an idea it wasn't good. And, uh, and so they call him a seed picker, and, and, and what they were intimating concerning Paul was just like you throw seed out on, on the, the ground for the birds to come and eat, that he, uh, what he was teaching was kind of this uh, conglomeration of philosophies that he had picked up here and there in the same way that a bird might peck at a bunch of different seeds and then come up with something unique and then call it his own. And so that's what, uh, that's what they thought. It's something new, and he's just taken all of these things and worked out a different way of looking at things. And so uh, that uh, that's the, uh, the uh, assessment that they had of him, not a very complimentary uh, assessment, but they didn't uh, cancel him or anything uh, uh, like that. And, uh, and so they said, others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And so they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus. And the Areopagus is a, a mountain, kind of a, a high hill made of stone there in Athens to this day. 
and it was also known as Mars Hill. And Mars Hill was both a a, a place of, of hearing and listening to people, for com- people to come and speak to a large group of people in Athens. And it was also a judgment seat. And so here are these Epicurean philosophers, the Stoic philosophers, and, uh, and uh, they invite Paul to come now and speak at the Areopagus. Number one, they want to know what in the world is he saying, and they want to be able to assess it in this kind of formal setting. But they also had a responsibility uh, to kind of uh, understand what new doctrines anybody was bringing into Athens. And so there was an official aspect to uh, all of this as, uh, as well. And so they invite him uh, to come and, uh, to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. They invite him uh, to preach at the Areopagus. This is known as an open door. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, therefore we want to know what these things mean. Uh, we can't track with you all the way in terms of what you're saying here, the implications of it, but we want to know more. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either uh, to tell or to hear uh, some uh, new thing. And so an intellectually uh, curious environment, uh, uh, not very honest, as we'll see in a moment, but some of them were, but uh, they're open to hearing something new. And uh, so when you're in that, uh, a person that's in that kind of a place is already admitting that whatever it is, whatever philosophy or whatever religion they've settled into, um, they still have uh, some ultimate doubts about it in terms of its ability to answer all the questions uh, of, of life. And so they want to keep an open mind r- related uh, to that. And so Paul is then given the floor there at the Areopagus. You wonder what in the world would he, uh, what in the world would he say to them? And uh, he stands there and he said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very uh, religious. And... Um, he has, I don't think this is an example of dry humor on his fault. And he looks over, you know, at, uh, at Luke and Silas and Timothy. Yeah, these people, they're crazy. I don't know what they're doing over here. Um, very respectful. Very respectful toward him. And uh, what they worshipped in terms of gods, and in, in, the, in the Greek and Roman gods were basically the deification of the flesh. It was just an excuse to worship self, to worship the fallenness of the flesh, but to sanctify it by calling it worship. So it's, it's nonsense. Paul knows it's nonsense. It's a farce. And, uh, and anybody that wanted to look at it could see it for, for what it was. But he, he begins respectfully, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you're very uh, religious. When we talk with people about their religions, we are talking to people about the single most important thing in their life. And, and we have to be respectful related to that. So Paul looks and he is endeavoring to discover, and he does discover, 
something to commend them for. It is clear you are very religious people. You're to be commended in your search for the meaning of life and the efforts, obvious great effort you've gone to, endeavoring uh, to do that, and he commends them uh, for it. One of the problems with being um, a Christian and, and knowing the Scriptures, one of the problems is concerning God, concerning uh, religion and, 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 and truth, um, is that we are right and they're wrong. That's just the way that it is. We're not right. God is right. We've just gotten on board with right. So when we carry the message, we're right, and the other religious systems are wrong. The key is how to be right and remain humble and remain winsome and respectful in our conversation with other people about the most important thing in their life in engaging in a religious discussion. And Paul gets all of that. He finds something to commend them for. And he says, for as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I went through the city just uh, really trying to understand and looking at it. He was very familiar with Epicurean and Stoic philosophy. Paul knew all of that inside and out. But he was considering the objects of their worship there, and he said, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. And so Paul sees that in the city, and it comes to his mind here, whether he planned it or it just comes to his mind at the moment as he's delivering the sermon, we don't know. But he builds a bridge to the audience by talking about their altar that they built to the unknown God. Sometimes you'll have a speaker that'll come in, um, not so much anymore, but in the old days, somebody would come in and maybe do a revival or something like that, a week of revival meetings, and the speaker would come in and from out of town and maybe out of state, and in order to build kind of a rapport with, with the audience or the congregation, they'll pick up a newspaper or something that talks about the local news and, uh, and then say something about the local conditions so uh, people realize, oh, we know something about us. And, uh, or maybe there's uh, an incident, some terrible thing or some wonderful thing has happened in the city. He's conversant with it. And then if he were to say, and tonight I want to talk with you about that. And immediately you have built a bridge from yourself to that congregation, a personal bridge. And that's what he does uh, here. And he, um, he immediately has their attention. It's brilliant, really, by the Holy Spirit of how he introduces all uh, of this. You've got this uh, uh, altar to an unknown God. Why would you have an altar to an unknown God? Except that you're afraid that there might be a God that you've overlooked in this forest of gods that made up the religious uh, atmosphere and scenery of, of Athens. 
And so they're not confident at all, uh, no city that would build an altar like that. I mean, what if you came to church next Sunday and we had an altar to the unknown God in the, in the foyer? What in the world? I mean, they, they have no confidence in what they believe here. They're hedging all their bets in case they missed the one right God, and, and that's what they're doing. They're just covering all of, all of the bases on this, ta- tagging all of them. And, uh, and, and so uh, Paul makes mention of this, and uh, he would have absolutely had their full attention. What is, he's right, we did, we've got one of those. What's he going to do? What's he going to say? I mean, we thought he was just going to come up and give us a bunch of seed picker stuff. He knows enough a little bit about our city and about our religion and about how we worship and down to this idol, that we, uh, this altar that we've set up to the unknown God. And, and what's he going to do with this? The things that we worship. And so Paul said, therefore, the one to whom you worship without knowing, that is the unknown God, unknown to them thus far, him I uh, proclaim now to you. And so he begins his description of God to them, God who made the world and everything in it. And so he begins as he did, always did with a Gentile audience. He introduced the Gentile audience to God as the creator of all things and thus greater than his creation. And so God who made the world and everything in it since he is Lord of heaven and earth does not dwell in temples made with hands. And so uh, he uh, brings uh, the Lord forth as, uh, as the creator of uh, the heavens uh, and the earth and uh, as was his pattern. And Paul makes the, made an application of this truth to his audience in Athens since God is both uh, the creator and the Lord of the heavens and the earth He is thus bigger than the heavens and the earth. And so how in the world can he be contained in temples made with hands? How in the world can that happen? How can these temples contain him uh, in any way? Would have been interesting to see their reaction to that, but they, they didn't stop Paul. They're listening very intently to what he has to say. They understand the logic of his, his argument and his application here. And then, and, and, uh, and then he moves on and he speaks about God as the sustainer, uh, the giver of life and the sustainer of life. Nor is he worshipped with man's hands as though he needed anything. He doesn't need us to build temples or idols of him. He doesn't need anything we can produce since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men who dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of uh, their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord and the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move, we have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we 
are also his offspring. And so uh, Paul tells them that God doesn't need anything uh, uh, or or want anything or uh, need anything or anyone. He's not dependent upon mankind in any way, and and he's not dependent upon anything else for uh, his existence. He is self-existent. He is uh, self-sufficient. And uh, not only does he not need anything from man, he's the source of everything that gives life to man, Uh, our our breath, everything else that humanity uh, possesses. We are completely, Paul said, dependent upon this, uh, upon this God. This God is not dependent upon us in, in any way. And so he makes this point uh, to them. And in those two brief statements uh, that temples do not contain God and that the services in the temples add nothing to God, he's virtually wiped out the a necessity of the uh, entire religious systems of, of Greece. And yet to the credit of these listeners, they don't interrupt him. They understand what he's saying. And uh, they continue to listen to everything that he, he, is, he is saying. They understood the philosophical logic of it. To view God as uh, someone uh, we need to take care of as opposed to someone we need to take care of us. That completely reverses the roles uh, that are not only intended by God, but are absolutely vital. There's no other way. And, uh, and so it reverses the roles, uh, role between God and man to the, to the point of uh, absurdity. Uh, you notice Paul's statement in verse 26, he has made uh, from one blood every nation of men uh, to dwell on all the face of the earth. In other words, uh, Paul is saying that God created man. Uh, God is not a creation of man. He's not a projection of man as the, uh, so many of the uh, Roman and, uh, and Greek gods were. When he says in verse 26 that God has uh, determined our pre-appointed times and the boundaries for our dwellings, the idea is that every nation in the world is loved equally by God, cared for equally by God. Uh, the Greeks were quite proud of their culture, quite proud of their race and nationality and looked down upon uh, other nationalities and uh, and so Paul is simply letting this Greek audience know and preparing them for the news that they need salvation every bit as much as everybody else in the world that they look down upon. And, and that in, in knowing this, uh, he lets them know in verses 27 and 28 that each of us has a responsibility to seek this creator, this self-existent, sustaining God. And he said, uh, if we do, we will be sure to find him. And that's, that's the truth. It's yet today. We all live in God's living room. We're not far from God and God's not far from us. So groping in all these religious systems and trying to figure God out and all. We're in his living room. All we got to do is just say, God, what's the meaning of life? Where do I find hope in this place? What's the definitions of right and wrong? 
Why are we so messed up the way that we are? Why am I the mess that I am? And God in His living room will say, Oh, somebody finally asked a question among the eight billion that is worth answering that sounds like he's on a search for God. And then God will always come to that person and bring that person, answer the questions and bring that person uh, to him. We're not searching for God. Uh, God seeks us. One of the great things about being, uh, becoming a Christian is that all of the time, uh, even those of us who are maybe a little more philosophically minded, even though we didn't know what philosophy was, but searching for the meaning of life and all, and here we are, we think we're on a search for the meaning of life. We're on the search for God. And then, as I will say every so often, blessed that we found God this God of the Bible at the end of our search, but once we find God, it's to discover that He was drawing us to Him all along. The search was a product of His drawing us to Him. And that's what God is doing all day, every day, and in every single person's life. He's not far from anyone. He's not hard for a, a, a seeker uh, to find. God's not playing hide-and-seek with us. Oh, watch what I do to this guy. He's a mess. He needs hope like tonight. He might be a danger to himself tonight. And so I'm going to hide from him. Let's watch what, how he reacts to that. Now, God catches us then, and he catches us way before then when there's a seeking heart in us for him. And then in verse 29, Paul goes on and he continues his sermon by declaring mankind to bring uh, to be offspring. That is the creation of God. And therefore, since we are the offspring of God, uh, we ought not uh, to think that the divine nature is like silver or gold or stone, something shaped by art or man's devising. We have been created by God. What temple in the world? What idol in the world? made of the most precious metals and jewels known in the world compares to the human body, compares to the human eye, compares to the human brain or nervous system. Nothing compares uh, to the marvel that we are as his creation, and that his creation is uh, to him. And truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. And so Paul goes on, and he now presents God as a judge, that one day he is going to judge the world, uh, and he's going to judge the world by the man that he has ordained. And that's Jesus himself, as we'll see in a moment. You notice, related to this judgment, he says a lot in a sentence. It's, he says, he, God has appointed a day. It's fixed, verse 31. 
It's inescapable. It's going to be universal. He will judge the world. It's going to be righteous. That is, it's absolutely just and fair. Verse 31, and that the only hope that any of us has in the face of this coming judgment is to obey God's command to repent. Verse 30, now people don't like the subject of judgment today. And uh, uh, it, it, it frightens them a little bit. And uh, certainly the secular world doesn't like it. And so increasingly, in order to make ourselves, um, you know, more seeker-sensitive, uh, people can is, is, is a church, uh, you jettison uh, judgment, the judgment side of God, and you just emphasize the love side uh, of God, and you get these things out of, out, out of uh, balance and in, in an attempt to uh, appeal uh, to the world. And it is a great mistake. Because if I'm not going to be judged for my life, the life that I live now, and be judged one day by the God who created me, and you come to me, and you tell me that I need to be saved and forgiven of my sins, my question is going to be, why? Why, if there is no judgment or no accounting at the end of this life? It doesn't make sense to anyone. And so if you, if you take and you remove the aspect of, of judgment, uh, then Christianity becomes a, a silliness in terms of the fact that it's offering a solution to a problem that it has ceased to believe is a problem any longer. And that's why uh, John Stott, the famous uh, Christian leader and author, he's in heaven since 2011, he famously wrote in this regard, many people are rejecting our gospel today not because they perceive it to be false, but because they perceive it to be trivial. It's of no importance at all. And so when you have the pastor of the largest church in the United States of America presently, uh, get on national television and say that he does not preach about sin or preach about judgment. He leaves that to others uh, to, do, uh, to do that, that he just wants to preach positive messages. What he doesn't realize is he does the very thing Stott warns against, and that is he trivializes Christianity. He trivializes it, and it ignores Christianity's depth and its wisdom and the necessity of its message and, and the gospel. And so Paul does move uh, to judgment and the need to be ready for that, uh, for that uh, judgment. And, and he talks about the judge, the one who will judge this world in righteousness. He said, it will be done by the man, uppercase M, speaking of Jesus, whom he has ordained and he has given assurance of all of this by raising this man uh, from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, we will hear you again on this matter. And so Paul departed from uh, among them. And so Paul declares Jesus to be uniquely qualified for uh, overseeing this judgment 
uh, of mankind one day by virtue of his resurrection from the dead. Everything is going so nicely uh, in, in the sermon. Everybody's listening. Everybody's tracking with them. And, and, uh, uh, and until Paul mentions the subject of resurrection and specifically the resurrection of Jesus and it blows the entire uh, meeting up. It's interesting to notice that they listen to Paul's uh, teaching about God as the creator, God as the sustainer of the heavens and the earth, uh, the giver and the sustainer of life, that he's the creator of man, even concerning the future judgment and the need to repent. All of that without a peep of protest on their part. But the moment he speaks about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, chaos erupts. And I don't think any of that surprised Paul. Uh, Again, I think he was very, very well steeped, having been raised in a Gentile environment, uh, a Jew in a a very secular environment, uh, that he's very well versed on Greek thought and religion, and he knew what the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers thought in this regard. The Epicureans believed there was no human existence after death, and the Stoics believed that only the immaterial spirit survived death. And yet Paul preached the resurrection from the dead anyway. Why would he do it? Couldn't he just have preached the death and the burial of Jesus? And and yet every time we see in the scriptures that the gospel is preached, it is the death, the burial, and the resurrection. Why is the resurrection so vital to the gospel and to man's salvation? And if they had not blown up the meeting by treating Uh, the truth of the resurrection with the scorn that they uh, did and instead said, listen, we don't believe in resurrection. That's goofy to us. Can you explain why the resurrection of this judge is so important to what it is that you're saying? Then Paul would have been able to continue his sermon. Sometimes they... People criticize Paul for this sermon uh, here. And they criticize him because he uh, never uh, uh, quite got the full gospel out, though he did preach the resurrection. He preached death, burial, and resurrection. And, uh, and so Paul, he bombed here in Athens, and so when he goes to Corinth next, um, he's determined to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I learned my lesson about trying to be philosophical and relate to the culture and, and presenting things and all. And I, I don't agree with that because I, I, you might be able to make that case if Paul had concluded his sermon on his own, but he didn't. The inconvenient fact is that his sermon was interrupted. He never got to finish it. And if they had simply asked the question or perhaps allowed him the time to elaborate upon the resurrection uh, of Jesus, he could have gone on then to declare the importance of the resurrection, not only to Christianity, but to us. The resurrection of Jesus declared, as Paul wrote to the Romans, declared Jesus to be the Son of God. And it demonstrated as true His claims to be divine and the Son of God. Jesus' resurrection from the dead was the heaven's stamp of approval upon Jesus, upon everything that He taught, everything that He did in claiming to represent heaven and to represent God the Father. 
And likewise, the resurrection of Jesus reveals that man can be justified through simple faith in Jesus. The resurrection represents his victory over not only uh, uh, over uh, 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 hell and not uh, his, only his authority over hell, but his authority over death. What good is it if we have a salvation and there is no answer to death? No salvation that includes a victory over death. And then also the resurrection of Jesus reveals to us his, his victory and his uh, uh, ultimate power uh, over death. Why would I follow a religious system that didn't imp- uh, provide not only an explanation for the existence of death in the human condition, but a victory over it? But they didn't let him go there. But those are the implications of the, the resurrection. I don't think it was a failure uh, at all. And, uh, and so neither the Stoics or the Epicureans uh, pretended to even know uh, or be able to speculate about the existence of death in mankind, let alone uh, a solution to it, let alone to speak authoritatively of what happens after uh, death. And so whether by scorn or whether by procrastination, they blew up the meeting and they silenced uh, Paul's witness to Jesus' resurrection uh, from the dead. It would have been by design on their part. They understood these environments. They understood philosophical uh, discussions. And, uh, and so they, uh, they understood exactly they were going to bring this uh, debate or this discussion or presentation to an end, and, and they uh, did. They didn't want to listen to anymore because uh, they simply didn't want to hear what Paul had to say uh, beyond that. And the response is a beautiful response that occurs there. Even an interrupted sermon uh, uh, bore... A significant fruit. And some of them uh, heard of the resurrection of the dead. They mocked. Others said they procrastinated. We'll, we'll hear you another time on this matter. And so Paul departed from among them. He got to say what he got to say. Lord, I, I went through that door as fully as I was allowed to do that. And uh, now it's in your hands. However, some people joined him and believed and among them uh, Dionysius and the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. And so people saved there at that sermon as they got what it was that Paul was saying and then came into the kingdom of God in the same way that we did. Beautiful, beautiful picture of uh, I think just a magnificent sermon on the part of, of Paul, a great template for trying to reach a, a pagan culture uh, with the gospel effectively. And, and so he did. But no one has control over how a person will respond to it. All we can do is deliver the truth. And then whether that truth is accepted or rejected, that's a reflection uh, between them and God. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, we thank you tonight for a reasonable faith. And as we have walked with you for some length of time, to have our faith not built upon your miracles, 
not built upon, as Peter said, being on the Mount of Transfiguration with you and all of the things that he saw, all of the things that he heard, but his faith built upon the witness, the more sure word of prophecy, the witness of the Old Testament Scriptures to your claim to be Messiah. And that great reasonable faith that we have that then allows us to walk into the full experience of the Christian life. Thank you for that. Thank you so much for this example that we see in the Bereans here tonight and what is our portion as well um, to receive the Word of God with readiness of mind but then always to uh, test those things that we hear by your Scriptures to see whether they are so. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to keep us growing in this uh, being a Berean in our own Christian walk. Thank you for this time that we've had tonight in your word. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.